podcast devoted to discussions of how the Christian worldview transforms all of life. I'm your host, Corey Barnes, and I'm blessed to be joined today with my co-host, Dr. Aaron Rice. And today we are going to continue in the vein of our last episode of talking about theology. And what we talked about last week was kind of did some analyzing of the Ligonier and Lifeway study on views about Christianity in America. And Aaron, to summarize that really quickly, it, it turns out, as we would have expected, that not all Christians, at least in America, and this would be the same globally, are defining their Christianity in terms of biblical orthodoxy. Yeah, I mean, even just on a practical level, whenever I think about um, some of our students that go out and work in FCA groups and other interdenominational groups, I think whenever you get a sampling of American Christians out there, it it really is not just lock, stock, and barrel. Everybody coming up with the same answer, and it's really surprising in some ways the answers that we're getting, and we talked about that a lot in the last episode, and I think that's really important that we see that there are a lot of variations on what people believe about who God is, his character, and how that works out in our lives as as creatures of the, the Almighty God who created us. And so that really leads us into today talking about the Nicene Creed. So, Corey, why do you think it's so important for us to have a creed or to confess our beliefs about who God is? That's, that's a great question, and it drives us into understanding historically where the Nicene Creed and other creeds come from. Creeds become necessary when there are divergent beliefs about Christianity. So in other words, once we have multiple groups of Christians that are saying different things, it becomes important for us to say, well, no, that, that's not how it is. It's this way. Creeds are also one of those things that for, uh, for me as a, as a Great Commission Baptist and just as a Baptist in general, can kind of make me bristle a little bit. Uh, Baptist and, and other kind of low church evangelicals at time have had this saying, well, there's going to be no creed but the Bible. Of course, the problem with that is it is in of itself a creedal statement about the Bible. So we do need these statements. They don't replace biblical authority, but they are helpful guidelines. We can think of them as, as like guardrails. Of if we're inside of this confession, we're still within Orthodox Christianity as it's defined by the Bible. So once we have multiple views, we need these creedal statements to help us define our, our views, what, what is right, and then by inference, what's wrong. I think one of the beautiful things as we're thinking about this is a creed is really a very practical tool to help us think about the things that are far beyond us. It's, it's, most, it's a very large um, philosophical and theological concept, and we break it down and we use these creeds to help, just like you said, keep us in line, keep us within a specific thought process and something that points us to what the Bible says. It points us there and it gives us that framework. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think one of the things we need to talk about now is where did this come from and how did it develop and who was involved in, you know, did, did it just, you know, ex nihilo pop out of, uh, out here? Um, and we know that's not the case. And so how did really the, the development of the Nicene Creed affect those folks that were contemporaries of this document and how does it affect us now? If we're going to tell the story of the Creed, we probably have to begin with the Emperor Constantine. That's not the only place we could begin, but one of the reasons we can begin with Constantine is because with Constantine's acceptance of Christianity, and I'm not talking necessarily about his acceptance of it as a personal belief system or identifying himself as a Christian. Constantine has a messy religious history. He's not 
baptized until his deathbed. But as Constantine begins to see value in Christianity, and, and, and there's reasons to think maybe he sees it as a way to unite the empire, you all of a sudden have the ability for the church to come together and have a government-sanctioned form of Christianity. That's part of where the Nicene Creed comes from. Now, you've already had creeds at this point. The Old Roman Standard, which becomes known as what we call today the Apostles' Creed, already exists in, in different formats. You have documents like the Apostolic Traditions and the Apostolic Constitutions that have creedal language in them. The Didache has very basic uh, creedal statements in it, and that goes all the way back to the first century. So this isn't the first creed, but it's a different kind of creed because we have the, the, the force of government in some sense, at least has the ability to be behind it. The other thing we have to talk about is Arius. Um, and so we talked about the fact that creeds become necessary when you have multiple ideas about something. Well, in, um, so in the, the early 300s, you have this guy uh, named Arius who begins to teach that uh, Jesus was the first created being of the Father um, and that he himself was not actually God. Um, or at least if he is God, he's not, he, he's, he's not a, a necessary part of the Godhead. Again, he's a created being. So Arius's famous statement, or at least what his opponents <laughs> claimed that he was saying, was that there was a time when the Son was not. And of course, this is contradictory to what most Christians believe and what we, we would see the biblical teaching being, uh, that Jesus is God. We think about John 1, especially 1 through 3 there. And so, uh, so this causes uh, a lot of strife in the church. And so what happens is, is to settle this dispute, Constantine calls a council uh, to begin to, to deal with this issue. And, uh, and we call that the Council of Nicaea, largely because they met in Nicaea, which was a city in what we would now know as modern-day Turkey. And I know that probably some of our listeners and a variety of people, even for centuries now, may be saying or may have said, well, this thing looks like a political thing that is extra-biblical. Why do we need to have this in our lives? Because it's just popping up. And I think, again, as we've said over and over in this conversation already, that it is something that God has used to bolster the biblical account of who he is and to help people coalesce around ideas about who God is so that we can rightly worship him and rightly cooperate in our ministry. And um, as we look at this uh, further with the, um, these controversies, theological controversies, the question is, um, does this kind of thing extrapolate to our contemporary scenario now whenever we're talking about the nature of who God is, the nature of who Christ is? Mm -hmm. It absolutely does because the question is still very much the same. Exactly. So the question that we looked at in the Ligonier study about was Jesus just a good teacher or was he God, and we saw that there's a great deal of confusion among those who identify as Christians in America about that, shows us that this is still an issue. That is Arianism. So, so that is, you know, is Jesus a great teacher? Is he, is he essential to God's plan, but not himself God, or is he God? 
And and again, Orthodox Christianity rises or falls on that statement. So so we're still very much in the same situation. But Corey, how is Santa Claus related to this whole thing? Man, I'm so glad you brought that up. And let's let's uh, let's separate something here, okay? Let's talk about history as it most likely happened, and history as Corey desperately wants mm-hmm. it to happen. Um, so the the legend about this is is that uh, there is a a guy that is a uh, a player in. Uh, in the, the, the Council of Nicaea called Nicholas of Myra. And Nicholas of Myra, who we now today know as St. Nicholas, certainly is in the Council of Nicaea, and he's certainly on what we would call the Nicaean side, meaning the anti-Aryan side. Right. So Santa Claus, if nothing else, was an Orthodox Christian. <laughs> but there's another story that develops that Nicholas of Myra, St. Nicholas, uh, you know, uh, that, that whenever he hears Arius come to the floor— and in his view, profane the Son of God by saying that he was a created being and not himself a part of the Godhead, that he, he, he becomes so uh, offended in his jolly old self that he rises to the floor and, and slaps slash punches Arius in the face. Tradition also says that he later apologized. Now, we can't really prove that through good historical means, but but it's such a phenomenal story. That isn't is it? tremendous. I mean, that's about the best anecdote that you could possibly come up with for um, for <laughs> for the Council of Nicaea. And, and in reality, if only Christians knew what Santa Claus really was like, I think that would absolutely revolutionize Elf on the Shelf. Um, <laughs> that's exactly right. Commit Trinitarian heresies in your household, and Santa might show up and punch yeah. you. So, uh, yeah, so so it does illustrate a purpose, though. Tensions run high over this. And let's go back to something you said a moment ago. It's tempting to dismiss all of this as a bunch of political and theological mm-hmm. infighting that doesn't really matter. But the reason that people are becoming so indignant about it and temperature, you know, tempers run so high is because it is tremendously important. Jesus either is God or he's not. And, and in that statement, in the truth that you affirm in that statement, actually rises or falls whether or not your worship in Christianity is idolatry or it isn't. If Jesus is not God and you're worshiping him as God, then you are committing idolatry. If Jesus is God and you don't recognize him as such, then you're committing idolatry. So it's, a, it's, it's not a, an issue of theological minutia. It's a major issue, and that's one of the reasons that the council is convened. Absolutely essential. Yeah. The other thing I think we need to talk about, Aaron, is the nature of Constantine. Let's talk for a moment in our current political moment. So we're recording this podcast. It's mid-September. It's 2020, where early voting has just started for the presidential election in some states. It will decide whether or not President Donald Trump gets a second term. We've heard him compared to Constantine. Uh, What do you think are some reasons for that? And then let's let's circle back to how this can apply to our discussion. I would think that some of the the association of President Trump with um, Constantine would honestly be because of his close association with the evangelical um, voting bloc, uh, particularly these days, and seeing um, them uh, quickly uh, associate with him, primarily because of his um, quick uh, attention to um, rights on, on, uh, on religious liberty on his connection with uh, Second Amendment rights, on his connection particularly with the causes of the unborn, and additionally with um, the Supreme Court. I mean, he's vowed to um, 
uh, bring in judges that would not only be on the, the, the Supreme Court, but on the lower courts that would defend religious liberty and would defend the rights of the unborn and, in addition, um, continue to uphold a traditional view of marriage. And so uh, those uh, are big things that evangelicals generally hold to as big reasons for voting for someone. And for him to bring those things along uh, really uh, solidifies a connection. And some folks, whether they're evangelicals or outsiders um, from that, see that as potentially him pandering to a particular voting block so that he can make his political rise a rapid one and a successful one quickly. Because if he locks up the uh, vote of the evangelicals, then he has a large voting block in his in his camp. And so I think that that's similar to what Constantine's doing. He's looking to get this group of Christians together. And so if he can get these Christians, which the church had been growing and growing and growing since its early days, and they were at this point a strong group of people that were active in the culture and that could be harnessed in a political way to drive him to success and to greater power. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that people look at the similarities between Constantine and uh, President Trump is because they use a religious group that is strong, that is united, that is connected to help further their political means. And um, and so I think that's one of the reasons you see that comparison and that connection. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Also, the fact that Constantine and President Trump both have this similarity with, you know, President Trump with evangelical Christians, Constantine with Christians in his day, that there's this sense in which they might have our best interest at heart, but they're not necessarily one of us. So there's there's actually an acknowledgement both historically with Constantine and then I think in contemporary settings with, with President Trump where there's this understanding of they're not quite part of the movement. Maybe they will be one day. Maybe they sort of are. Maybe they, they you know— uh, have some beliefs that align with this, but they don't. They're not. They're not thought of as strong members. Just people who support what we want. So there's similarities there. Now, let, now let's talk about something historically with the Council of Nicaea, because we need to start moving into what the actual text of the creed says and why that's important and why that's going to become a major feature of the podcast. But I want to clarify something with Constantine. Let's let's talk just very briefly about the players that come together. So again, the story of the creed is kind of begins with Constantine. And for the first time, you have someone who is trying to unify the empire under Christianity. To your point, it seems largely politically charged. Other emperors have tried to do it. Uh, the the emperors who are in control of the New Testament period or the what we call the Judeo-Claudian line, they're trying to do it through uh, emperor worship, that if we can just show the emperor to be this invincible figure and get people to worship him, that'll unite the empire under a common religion. Uh, later on, Marcus Aurelius is going to try to do it by returning to traditional paganism. Um, Septimus Severus is going to try to do it by kind of creating a chief deity that he calls the unconquerable son. And now Constantine's trying to do something similar, kind of unite the empire, at least a large portion of it, uh, with with a common religion or at least solidify a major religious block by fully accepting their religion into the empire. Right. So there's political gains. At the same time, I think that we've often misread the story of the Council of Nicaea by saying that Constantine is going to use his political power to establish biblical orthodoxy. Here's what's going to happen in the Council of Nicaea. The major players, Constantine is going to call the conference and sort of preside over it. But then you're going to have a couple of bishops. You're going to have a guy named Alexander 
of Alexandria, which is super convenient. Isn't that right? cool? He's going to be the leader of the anti-Aryan party, along with one of his assistants, a younger churchman in the area named Athanasius, who will become much more famous later on. And then you're obviously going to have uh, not only Arius, but also a guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia, who are the leaders of the Arian party. Now, here's what I want us to see. In the council, because the Arian position was so clearly non-biblical, the anti-Arian party wins very quickly and establishes the Nicene Creed, though, as we'll have to talk about in just a moment, that's not quite the same text that we read today. And Constantine approves, except... Constantine goes back to Constantinopolis, capital city, and the the bishop that continues to minister to him is Eusebius of Nicomedia, the leader of the Arian party. And so the guy that's eventually going to baptize Constantine on his deathbed is going to be an Arian. And it's going to be the Arians that have political power for the next generation, the next several emperors, and they're going to constantly persecute the Nicene party. So actually the political power of empire goes into the anti-Orthodox position, even though it just very briefly initially agrees with the Nicene position, the Orthodox position. So actually this is all a story about the, the theology of the creed transcending political power. It might come about because of a, a political need, but what we actually see is God graciously using this to, to foster orthodox growth in the church. I think it's again just shouting at us God's providence. Over and over and over we see situations just like this whenever Henry VIII uh, is, is bringing about this new um, idea of theology and reformation in England. We know that it generally, for him, was all about uh, getting children and carrying on his line. But in reality, Thomas Cranmer saw this as his opportunity to bring about reformation in England and to develop a church that would honor God and that would be about the people knowing and loving God. I think, again, it was a political scenario and a personal scenario that God used for his greater good in uh, the life of Thomas Cranmer and Henry VIII. And so we're seeing another connection just like this with the Arian controversy and Nicaea. It again just shouts at us, God is providential and he cares for his people and he cares that we know his his character and his truth and his goodness and his beauty. That's exactly right. Affirming for us the truth that we see in the prophets. We see this in Isaiah. Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 8 both refer to God whistling for mm. the nations to do his will, including pagans and tyrants. So we absolutely see this as an affirmation of God's sovereignty. Well, let's move forward. We're, we're coming to the close. And, and I know this has been much more technical than most of our podcasts. We do want to assure you that we are moving into a much more practical application of all this, but we wanted you to see where the creed comes from. So let me end our story of the Council of Nicaea by just saying this. The, the Council of Nicaea is convened in 325, and it's going to produce what, what at that point was the Nicene Creed. Another controversy is going to arise after that. Two things are going to happen. The Aryan party is going to take political power. And the second thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of controversy over who is the Holy Spirit, not just who is Jesus. So what's going to happen is, is that there's going to become a need to further clarify who is the Holy Spirit. And then also what's going to happen is that the anti-Aryan Nicene party is going to convince the church, by and large, that their position is right. There'll be a second council called, called the Council of Constantinople. And this is where the creed we know today actually comes from, which is the reason that it might be more properly referred to as the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. So we know this is a lot of history and a lot of background, 
but what we're going to do is we're going to end the podcast today, and we're going to uh, Aaron is going to read the Nicene Creed for us. And and what we're going to see is at the end of this podcast is just to to hear this beautiful statement of doctrine, uh, just read in the mellow tones of the pride of North Carolina, Mr. Aaron Rice. Uh, but then we're going to spend several episodes really breaking this down and seeing the very practical element of living out this theology. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to Transformed, a podcast provided by Shorter University. Shorter University is a liberal arts university located in Rome, Georgia. For more resources provided by Transformed, including podcasts, episodes, book reviews, and articles, check out transformed.shorter.edu. For more information on Shorter University, go to shorter.edu. Tune in next week as we can continue to discuss the Nicene Creed and see how that informs our Christian worldview. Thanks for joining with us, y'all.